Hello and welcome to Four Color Nerds Comic Podcast, episode 73. I'm Matt, and I'm joined by Ryan. Hello. Carissa. Hello. Together we take on this week's comics. Each week, we read a variety of comics and gather here to discuss them. This is a review show, so there will be spoilers. If you don't want to hear spoilers, take a break now, go read your week's books, and then come back. Each week, one of us picks their favorite book, and that's our pick of the week. This week, I am that nerd. And this week, this pick of the week goes to, and surprises here because I'm not the biggest fan of Secret Empire, as anybody who's seen our Facebook page will know, but our pick of the week goes to Secret Empire number one. Our companion song is Fortunate Son by Credence Clearwater Revival, because, well, Rick Jones is not the fortunate son. Let's take a listen. Rick Jones. I know, poor Rick Jones. Eternal sidekick. <laughs> not anymore. <laughs> yes, maybe Eternal's not the right one. My biggest problem with this freaking story is he's gonna come back, Cap's gonna be a good guy. I really like this book, but it feels like a big jump from issue zero to issue one. It feels like six months or six issues have passed. Very in media res, like right in the middle of the story. The basic summary of the book is like Ryan has been saying, it literally seems like we've jumped six months into the future from the end of Secret Empire Zero. It's like it's had years as being a fascist state controlled by Captain America and they've got all these systems and everything set up and the resistance has already happened. There's already been battles. It makes zero sense from the last issue to this one. It's literally just, okay, and go. And they give a quick semi-summary at the beginning and maybe I missed it. I didn't see anywhere where it said six months later. The society they have set up seems like it's been around for a long time, but the heroes are still fighting out in space and some of that timeline stuff is a little weird. It's a little wonky. Captain Marvel is still trying not to die, but they've got all these dreadnoughts made, and granted, they could have done this already in the past, or maybe it's because of the the Kobuk fuckery. The Secret Empire starts out with America having been a Hydra state for who knows how long. It just is now, but the heroes are still fighting against Captain America, and it shows Captain America that's a little different to the post-Kobuk fuckery, pre-Secret Empire book, where he was looking like a really scary guy. I mean, this is the dude that threw Red Skull out of a fucking window. But in this, he almost seems having second thoughts about the whole thing. I'm bored, and these guys are assholes. The way that I interpreted it is all of Steve's brutality was to get to a certain point, right? Right, and now it's gone. And now it's gone, so he doesn't need to be brutal. People have to follow orders, but brutality is not his point. So I think he's kind of stuck now between the rest of Hydra, who wants to be brutal for the sake of bringing brutal and evil and steve wants things just to kind of like run smoothly yeah i kind of had an analogy you know in shows or movies where you'll have like a wish the genie has to fulfill your wish but it's going to fulfill exactly what you asked for it's like they asked for him to get to the point where secret empire starts and then after that the wish is over he's already fulfilled everything that the wish had in it and now he's just kind of it's wearing off and he's becoming cap again with the world already fucked we put ourselves into what is conceptually a an apocalypse world for the marvel universe the timelines are really confusing and it's my biggest criticism of the big two is that nobody seems to have had any editorial control that's a little unfair because the other publishers they don't really have broad sweeping universes don't do stories that countermand the big pushes because it makes the big push seem 
seem like it's not actually happening. Part of my thing is I'm getting exhausted with Marvel Comics. They're exhausting my give a shit. I don't want to have to buy 70 books a month just so that I can understand the only story you're telling right now and have that story mean nothing at the end of it. It's basically the story of the Resistance fighting back against Captain America and Captain America having a sense of kind of malaise towards everything that he just did. I picked the book because it is important to where Marvel Comics is right now and it is really, really well written. That's one of the things that I have to give everything for the Captain America's Hydra thing and the Secret Empire thing. It's not a half-assed job of writing. It's just an incredibly implausible story that I know they're going to work their way out of. This particular issue did have a fucked-up scene because Rick Jones, the guy who helped invent the Hulk... Had a bunch of fucked-up scenes. But the serious top-of-the-pile fucked-up scene is towards the end of it. They sacrifice for Cap's image, Rick Jones. Cap does try to figure out a way to make it okay for him to not have to publicly execute Rick Jones, and he just can't do it. And so they literally putting him up in front of a firing squad of their stormtroopers, because I'm just going to call them what they are. It's the Hydra stormtroopers. I mean, they're kind of wicked looking. They literally shoot him full of holes. That kind of goes back. He's not the fortunate son. Which, on the flip side, Cap is also not the fortunate son here, because he's in a position that he doesn't really want to be in. They set that up so well. I didn't want it to happen. I'm not going to lie. I'm going to say that I teared up a little bit when it did happen. It's fucked up. So fucked up. And it's going to cause such stress in this series. He's going to be the martyr that everybody rallies around. There's the moment when they're going to set this up where he's in the jail cell and Cap's trying to convince him to just say Hill Hydra. You don't even have to mean it. Just give me something to be able to hand over to them. And he's like, you know, Cap, I believe in you. You're my hero. I know you're going to turn this all around. And then he has him shot. And that makes it even more heartbreaking that even to the end, Rick Jones still believes in Cap. And here's the thing. Rick Jones, I mean, he's been the sidekick for everybody. He used to be Bucky for a while. Yeah, he was Bucky. He was a couple of different Hulk's sidekick. He was a one and a half of Captain Marvel, the original Captain Marvel. And as we all know, the job of a sidekick is to get shot at. Well, the hero does some cool stuff. He's the innocence of the Marvel Universe. He's the everyman. And in the yes. first book, Zero doesn't count. The first book, they kill the everyman. That felt like what Marvel is seeing to be trying to do is alienate fucking everyone. I think they're telling a damn good story here that has so many moments of emotional impact. There's that scene where Sharon and Steve are having dinner and she's kind of like the hostage that's being treated well. And she basically... Maybe you weren't a fucking fascist, Steve. Cap is like, Sharon, we could accomplish so much together. We could make the world better. And she's like, go fuck yourself, Captain America. You betrayed everything you stood for. You were rotten to the core. I'll never ever work with you. Which was, I think, a very good scene. And then you have the champions out in Las Vegas being part of the resistance along with Hawkeye and Black Widow. They're causing a bunch of trouble and at the end of the book you see this fleet of Hydra helicarriers converge on Las Vegas and reduce it to ash. Yeah, which, thanks guys, thanks. You literally killed me. (laughs) Yeah, you see like the Vegas Strip with just being bombarded by Hydra helicarriers. So there's lots of things that happen in this book and I think the art in this is fantastic. I think the writing is sharp. There's also, despite all the darkness in the book, there's moments that are amusing with the champions. They still get to be kind of their teenage selves dealing with this. 
I think overall the book was balanced pretty well. It even pulled Simon Williams and Stingray out of the mothballs. So you gotta tell that this shit is desperate. What do you think about it, Carissa? I'm actually disappointed that it's the pick of the week. I don't want to give this book any attention. I'm just kind of sick of it. I'm sick of everyone arguing about it. I'm sick of about hearing about it. It is well written. I give it that. I don't contest that whatsoever. I'm just so just done giving it attention. I don't care about it. The story-wise, even though it's well written, I just want it to be over. I feel like it's being dragged out. Not really interested in watching the cubic creation walking around in a Kafkaian suit. Him saying Avengers Assemble was pretty brutal. I think his biggest panel or scene that I'm going to take away from this issue kind of burnt out on it. Avengers needs something to avenge. I'm tired of people saying that we need to kick shit up another notch. You know, everything's just getting boring with the same old stories. And I'm like, that's because you've forgotten how to tell a good story. You don't need to go to these extremes. The reason I made it that is because I think it's the most important book only because we need to get past this. But we're we're fucking focusing on this. This is what ruined the Ultimate Universe, was that stupid ultimatum shit. And this is what ruined the Wildstorm Universe, because they had a, a fucking apocalypse there. And I'll, I'm just gonna come out and say it. The fucking New 52 sucked ass. And it's what ruined the DC Universe, but they at least had the sense to fucking go back. And Marvel's already announced that Cap's gonna be back to being a hero, and everything's gonna go back to the way things classically were. So why are we doing this? To sell some books, obviously. That's the thing with comics. It's like, we always know they're gonna get themselves out of it. And sure, that's part of the reason like I personally don't usually get worked up that much about it because you know eventually it's going to be the right way but there's still so much about it just grating on me in the wrong way and I really tried for it not to but it is and I'm just kind of burnt out about it it's not cap it doesn't sit well it's my pick of the week because this is the book that we always talk about because I fucking don't like this entire fucking storyline but for importance sake for comics this is the most important book on the list I don't like it the pick of the week doesn't have to be the book I like yeah that's true the only thing I'm looking forward to is like I said in the last time we talked about this is that I'm looking for more of the payout. I want to see Cap's reaction when it's actually Cap about what has happened, what has transpired. Really, the payout is the only thing about this that I'm looking forward to. All right, well, let's move on. Oh, wait, we need to rate it. Yeah, we have to rate it. I am going to give it three Avengers Assemble. It's a three because I don't really like Secret Empire. I don't like Evil Cap, but they're doing an exemplary job. It's the only reason they're getting that high of a score. Two and a half Vegas bombings. Sorry, Matt. It's the middle of the road. I don't think it's horrible as in quality. I'm just not interested it's not for me anymore i'm just over it so it's a halfway for me i think this is a masterpiece of writing and art i will give it five avengers assemble chrisa you have a book i do it is all new guardians of the galaxy number one smash and grab marvel comics written by gary duggan art by aaron cooter and colors by Ive man sorcina i'm gonna go with sorry if i uh tore that apart so this is the new guardians of the galaxy series starting up they're on this planet that is a banking and there's a guy giving sales pitch. This is a high story. So they see Galactus showing up on the planet and everyone starts freaking out. Oh my god we're gonna be eaten. And it turns out it is a giant mecha and I thought that was genius. That is so clever and so cute. Because at first you see this silhouette of him and he's like this is the most stupidest thing I've ever done and I'm like Galacticus wouldn't say that. <laughs> They're pulling off this heist to get an item and there's lots of cute funny things that I think are very Guardians that happen in it like they see someone who didn't think they escaped the planet eaten. They I take the opportunity to get it on and you get that kind of group gather together head tilt huh kind of thing they get the item but people are made aware that they're in the middle of uh, being ripped off and they start to come back so there's like this chase scene but they escape eventually it leads them to is it the grandmaster i think that's what they call him and he has a collection inside of a giant space fish like you do instead of paying them he's saying it's more like it was a test and i'm going to give you this real heist and when you do that i'll give you this money in a secret and they don't like that but they don't really have much of a choice 
the thing is that they want them to steal from the collector. And they're like, oh, yeah, no, we've already done that. That's not smart. We don't want to do that. He's like, well, technically you already have because this little galaxy bubble that you stole from me, one being super dangerous, was sold to the collector. So you already did pretty much steal from him. So go forth. It is what it is. It's not phenomenally, I think, written, but it's cute. I really like the heist. I think it's more aligned with what they're used to. The thing that I think that would have me come back is this end part where they're trying to address why Groot is toddler Groot, which I think they need to because they obviously want to extend that out since that's so popular so I can see that's what they're doing but the story that they look like they're building up for it is that when he got hurt and shattered where that got him that small from his regrowth there's splinters and there's this hooded person in this field with all of these little splinters plowed out and grow one rocket's like I didn't think you guys noticed which I still that goes back to the you didn't even learn his language part from a couple other books ago he's like we don't know why he's not growing we don't figure it out he's weak Weaker than he was and because these sprouts these other twigs are sapping his information <laughs> sapping sapling <laughs> get it i'm curious to see how that plays out if someone's growing their own army of baby groots then that will be interesting and also potential cuteness factor panels that i happen to like where rocket rolling out toddler group ball and saying say hello to my little friend and that was so cute peter going you know what scarface is and he's like what's a scarface and then there's the pop-up of cute little groot going i am groot as little rolling attack much as I miss Big Groot, Little Groot is just so fucking cute. He Can't is. there be like Baby Groot and Full Groot? Potentially, yes. You know, he is the last of his race that there could be more of them, but then it's also keeping him stuck at this. And maybe they're like baby birds and they like latch on to whoever's growing them and this person could be a bad influence. I don't know how that's going to work out. What happened to the rest of his race? The planet like died. There's always so many different... Ver- it's like, well, it's comics. There's a lot of different versions of Groot's backstory. Some say that the planet exploded and he survived and, you know, very crypto like and then other ones where yeah his family's a bunch of assholes and you know there's the one where the one of the original groups he was a bad guy i thought it was cute and funny i don't think it's the best guardians book i've ever read but i definitely feel like it has the tone and feel and there's definitely parts that would have me come back and look into it it was fun and it starts off with the heist Yes, I love the heist. And it was, I think, a very clever heist. I love the use of Galactus. I liked it for being a solid Guardians book. It's not exemplary, but it's not really a month for exemplary stuff. So it was really fun. It was heisty. And I love the teaser image for the last page where they're actually in the collector's vault, which kind of looks like it's in the middle of Jareth's Labyrinth. (laughs) Nice. The pacifist Drax is kind of neat. It's very strange. It's funny, though. I was not a super fan of this book, to be sure. I think the writing is kind of weak. The art's not particularly great. It's very cartoony and not particularly detailed. The heist is fun. I think it's hard to follow up Bendis' run, and I don't think this is up to the task. I think this is a very middle-of-the-road Guardians book. I think it's funny when people say, it's cartoony. It's a comic. Well, this looks like it should be on Cartoon Network. This doesn't look like the main Marvel book of Guardians of the Galaxy. This looks like the all-ages movie tie-in Guardians book. I think we'll have to agree to disagree on that one. I think Rocket looks weird in this. I was not a huge fan. Although I will say that image of the fish was pretty awesome. That reminds me a lot of Saga. That kind of weird, grandiose scale that they go for in that one particular panel. See, because I can see some inspiration from Mobius. Mm. 
because Mobius draws a really low detail and the animals like that. The person they have doing this, Aaron Cooter, he looks like he's kind of inspired by European comics because this is kind of what they look like. They're really low in lines and they use a lot of color when they use color at all. The anatomy on this is pretty spot on. He's yeah. really good on anatomy. Rocket is supposed to be like a cartoon animal, so he draws him with a cartoonishly big head. But beyond that, I think it's a really good book. It's just not a American-style art book. I think following up in this at all is going to be hard. There are hints that it has potential. I wouldn't say it was a bad book. I think unless you're a huge Guardians of the Galaxy fan, there's little reason to pick this up. The previous Guardians book, I felt, exceeded just your love of Guardians of the Galaxy, that it was in and of itself a good book, regardless of the Guardians tie-in. And this one relies heavily on the fact that it's Guardians of the Galaxy. And it goes from very similar to what we're talking about with Secret Empire, where it feels like we're missing issues for things that have happened to the Guardians. That's fair. And also, they're at Earth and they're out doing this. Yeah, I'm getting sick of that. There's a difference, though, between Secret Empire, which is literally at some points in that book seems like it's the next day, and at some points in the book seems like it's six months later. This is the start of a new Guardian series. I mean, it's even called All New all Guardians new. of the Galaxy. And I'm sick of All New being at the front of books. So this, I can kind of forgive that there's time taken out here, because one, they're traveling through space, so time is going to be different because time is going at a different speed on Earth as it is for them. Yeah, it doesn't bother me that they're in two places at once. I feel this one is sort of detached from the timeline in a, in a way. Guardians are usually so far removed from the rest of the Marvel Universe that they rarely interact. I mean, this is clearly after Civil War II because they talk about things happening on Earth and now they're not on Earth. But I could see this being after Secret Empire as well. I don't think it's that tied into the rest of the Marvel Universe. That's possible. Groot is very cute in this. I will say the, the little Groot is cute i am cute <laughs> so let's rate it up i gave it four what's a scarface because i think it has potential i'm gonna give it four shut up now so i can meditate because agree I, I think it's got potential i think it's starting off good at least it's not great but guardians of the galaxy is not easy to do i think i will give it two and a half don't look a gift galactus in the mouth that's a good one. So we're going over to Batman number 22, The Button Part 3 from DC Comics, written by Tom King and Joshua Williamson. Pencils and inks by Jason Fabuk. Colors by Brad Anderson. So this is the continuing story of the Watchmen Button and Flash and Batman's investigation of it. They are in the Flashpoint universe with Bruce's dad, the Batman of that universe. This one has a lot of Bruce and his father getting their time together. I do like how Tom King gives them those moments together where they each get to tell the other one the things that they were never able to say to them, which kind of the big reveal of this at the end is where Bruce's father tells him not to continue being the Batman, that his greatest desire in his life was to spare his son from pain and suffering. And if he continues to be the Batman, then that's inherently full of pain and suffering. And he tells them that as the cosmic treadmill has broken down in his cave and they're trying to repair it while Wonder Woman and Aquaman's armies have combined together to go after the Batman and he's getting ready to blow up the mansion with everyone inside it but that's when the Flashpoint universe starts collapsing in on itself. The First of all the Flashpoint universe should have ended but something kept it around they think it might be Reverse Flash that did it or maybe it's Dr. Manhattan which is what I think is more likely but it starts once they see this and are sort of tortured by what they see it starts to collapse in on itself like it's fulfilled its purpose. So as Batman and Flash are escaping on the cosmic treadmill from it the whole universe starts collapsing collapsing down into this white like singularity and you get this pretty cool image of batman leaping into that where he's just there's a white panel with him framed so 
he's almost become like a bat logo on it. It's pretty fantastic looking. The whole book, the art on this is some of my favorite art I've seen in a while. I think Tom King does good with giving you those moments of insightful writing that he does very well. I really want to see the conclusion for the button. I think we're three issues into a four issue arc and I don't really feel like we're any closer to understanding what the button is. I think we've gotten good things that have happened, but I'm worried that issue number four is going to be a lot to happen in one last issue to explain it. What do you guys think of it? I enjoy Tom King's Batman. It's good, but at the point, I'm not surprised that it's good. I love the more familial interactions in comics in general. Batman with his dad just hit good points for me. Those emotional ringers, I like that. That was what I found most interesting personally. I'm not so much sure how I care about Reverse Flash, and I didn't like seeing him hold the button. Overall, I liked it. I also continue to like it. It was a solid book. It wasn't outstanding. The art was really good. It lives up to what I think DC can put out. Because sometimes you see Batman, Superman, all of them, they just kind of get handed over to whatever artist there is. And it's not necessarily the best stuff. I think, honestly, those guys should get at least on a flagship book, which technically, I don't know, it's arguable as to whether or not Batman or Detective Comics is Batman's flagship book. Batman outsells every other book in DC combined, so... The art is competently good. It's just a little too Jim Lee-ish, but Jim Lee's one of the publishers, so I kind of expect his stuff. It is very Jim Lee. It's just me personally. I'm not a fan of Jim Lee. It's good. It's just not what I like. I have to agree with you that I don't know... how they're going to wrap this button story up. Unless the button is like a preamble to a bigger story. Could be. I don't really see how they're going to wrap up the importance of what this whole button thing is by the time this is up. But I will point out that this is going to end at summer. So I'm betting this is probably the pre-story to the summer event. Yeah, it seems like the importance of it would require more like an 8 or 12 issue arc. 8 or 12 issues and then everybody else in the DC universe having to deal with it. So I think you're right. This is probably a tease. This is Batman's pre-story and then Superman's pre-story was the whole red blue thing and the aftermath of that they're leading up to whatever the heck is going to happen this summer i agree so i think i will give it four and a half we rise i gave it four treadmills god damn it (laughs) you're gonna take treadmills really i thought that was a safe one i love the cosmic treadmill (laughs) i will give it three and a half don't be batman all right, on to another empire. This is a very imperial month. The next book, our little flip book of funny stories here, is The Eternal Empire Number 1 by Image Comics, written by Sarah Vaughn and Jonathan Luna, and art by Jonathan Luna. It looks like a Luna Brothers comic, that's for sure. Really hard to summarize this book. It starts off a little, made me think honestly of Westeros and all that stuff. This is maybe what's happening really way above the wall where it gets warm again, because there's this kind of ritual at the beginning of the book. It was some dragon loving. Yeah, with a dragon and this naked chick. And then she becomes the empress. And then all of a sudden, 141 years later, you've got somebody in this freezing wasteland pulling what looks to be like turnip carrots. I think the child from that union becomes the empress. There's at one point they say something about like the priestess, which I think was that chick, gave birth to the empress. Oh, see, I thought that the empress was basically what happened when the chick and the dragon merged. I'm pretty sure she got it on with the dragon and had a baby. And that baby has dragon wings and is the empress because you could there's definite dragon boning going on yeah she was saying i don't want to rape you will you allow me to get it on with you instead to that dragon to make a new race and then if you see the statue in the flash forward scene the statue has yeah there's a merged person yeah i think that's their baby human dragon Uh... baby 
if I had to summarize it, it's like this is a barely above Stone Age world where a human and a dragon did some stuff and because they were part of some sort of weird secret cult and then they took over the world and I'm assuming that this is going to be the story of them taking the world back and they're above a frozen desert so it's like this one little corner of the world and the screwy shit that happens there. It made me at some point feel a little like Last Airbender and at some points it was a little bit Song of Ice and Fire. It was just really confusing. It was not what I was expecting. I was expecting more sci-fi, yeah, so I was like, whoa, fantasy, okay. I was expecting something kind of closer to Saga. This, when I was talking earlier about European books, this is a very European book. Yeah, this book was Beautiful Confusion. Beautiful Confusion. That is a good name. That is a good, good name. There's a lot of stark panels where there's like barely nothing going on. I mean, it really does carry that sense of out in the middle of nowhere. It's a lot of pages of the same thing. There's a lot of panels where the person is just making grunting noises and confusion. A lot of moments where people are either gasping from exhaustion or staring open-mouthed at something. There's a lot of, I feel like, wasted panels in writing. Panels they do give you, though. I mean, I love the Luna Brothers art, so this looks like one of their books, like you were saying, Carissa, and it's beautiful. I just have no fucking idea what is really going on here. There's so many empires that have weird names and you don't really get any defining characteristics for them other than their names. There's a weird map at the beginning. I actually read this twice between the first read and the second read. I went and looked at the map, but it doesn't help any because they tell you weird clan name X, but they don't tell you anything about them. They're not like clan X, the horse people or, or something like that. So you have something to tie into them to remember them. It's just weird name, weird name, weird name. And there's like a science explanation at the back of the book about how their sons work. That was kind of interesting though. I did like that. It was interesting, but I'm not a huge fan of new things that I have no vested interest in, where I, just to understand what's going on, I have to go read a source book. I like to read source books when I want to read source books. I don't mind all of the extra stuff. If there's enough in the world to make me want to dig into it, I'll do the extra work, but I don't feel like I was given anything to really prompt me to do that extra work. But I do kind of want to know who that fire guy is, so at least I'm like, I'm kind of curious. The fire dude at the end. Yeah. This thing is, it's got a couple a little curious thing. I'm interested to see what's going on here because there's just not enough exposition in this book. There's enough to like get you started, but then well, one 141 years later is not enough so that you got like guard level people who have dragon tails. This is the same creative team that did Alex and Ada, which I think is a fantastic book from Image, but I don't feel like this had a very strong start. I like extra material when it's a super interesting thing and I'm like, oh god, I finished the book. What do I do now? Like Tolkien, if you ever get to the end of Lord of the Rings and you're like, I want more. Good Good news. <laughs> There's so much more. There's more written about Middle-earth than there is about the stories of Middle-earth. This, there's like, hey, here's this thing that explains the suns at the end of the thing. And I'm like, I don't care because your story didn't really grab me. When Hickman does these epic worlds, he gives you lots of information and source material to go back and look at, but it's worth doing because the world he's built is compelling and this just isn't very compelling. I will give it three explanations of how the fucking suns work. It was okay. I I think I will give it three frozen carrots. I gave it three dragon bonin. So let's talk about one of our favorite books. Champions, number eight, Marvel Comics, written by Mark Wade, art by Victor Alozaba, additional art and cover art by Emberto Ramos, and colors by Nolan Woodward and Edgar Delgado, and letters by Clayton 
cowls. If you remember last we left off that champion, someone copywrote their logo and their name. The bad guys. They were putting all sorts of things that they didn't endorse. We see Miss Marvel freaking out and the other champions trying to calm her down so she doesn't go all the way to the West Coast to pummel these guys. We basically see all the different champions going through how they feel about what's going on. They really feel defeated. Like there's nothing that they can do. There's a really cute scene with Hulk and Viv talking because she's saying how she turned off all her emotions and she thinks she wants to turn them back on and he wants to talk to her about their kiss and see if that's a good place for them to start. It was a really cute scene where Rachel's like, I don't think I like boys. And then he's just like, he hugs her and I was actually surprised she would do that and she's like, like what's going on? It's like, I have new sorts of feelings now for you and he's like super happy and giddy when he's hugging her. And there was a cute thing where Cyclops was using Viv as like a travel danger room kind of thing. He was having her project like scenarios of how he would explain themselves to the Avengers, which I thought was pretty cute. We see her constantly getting talked to. Her dad keeps on telling her she needs to come home because they've all been hanging out at Cho's house. And she's like, oh, but I'm off being a champion. He's like, no, you need to come home. Nova was sick of all the bickering and fighting about what was going on that he takes off. And then at the end, they're like, turn the TV on, turn this on. And he explains that he used social media to their advantage and went on there and was honest and told everyone what happened, what was going on, and that they don't endorse any of this product. So a lot of their fans listened and started like burning that merch. So the first Marvel thought it was like are they burning our effigies what's going on but no they were just rallying behind the champions there's a scene at the end where there's like well I actually do need to go home and she goes home and <laughs> the vision these like metal plates start coming down in her room they're like synced to a vibration where she can't face through them and he tells her she's grounded which I thought that's great <laughs> I just liked how that was handled so that's the quick summary and the gist of what happened your guys' opinion I felt this was a return to form for what makes champions good. I think that you get a lot of emphasis on the interaction between the characters and you get to see kind of their inherent goodness and optimism against a world that's sort of callous and jaded and how they interact with each other. I really like this. I thought the art on this worked really well for this. I thought there were lots of good interactions, especially like you were saying between Cho and Viv was really interesting that at first he does want to make out with her and then when he realizes that she doesn't know if she likes boys or not because she hasn't figured out gender and all that that yet he's just happy for her as a friend which i thought was a really nice thing for cho to do showed a little more maturity than i was expecting from him i think i don't like Alberto ramos I, I get the he's the right person to do the book i like the writing and i like the story but the art is just really hard to get past and it's not wrong for the material i just don't like his art style like at all so i think i'd like champions a hell of a lot better if Alberto ramos wasn't on it but like we've talked earlier in the podcast, that European style where there's a lot less lines and the anatomy is a bit better. I'm more of a preference to that than this, which seems kind of a little bit more inspired by kind of graffiti art or American cartoons. I'm not a huge fan of it. I think they're trying to make it skew it younger. I understand that. That's why I said it's not wrong for the book. It's just I don't like it. <laughs> kind of mad at Vision. I get that this is how he would react because he's a robot, but <laughs> it's kind of fucked up to seal her in walls inside her room he couldn't put the walls on the outside of her walls so that she yeah. could at least not be in a cold metal box i think that's pretty fucked up and i'm like wow that's child abuse right there <laughs> it's very prison cell you're like okay yeah, i think it's interesting how you deal with a teenager who has superpowers i think this is interesting to see the vision have to deal with that when viv gets grounded she does seem really affected by it she's sitting in a corner rolled up in a ball which seems a little more than just being grounded so i think it is pretty stark the way that he's doing it uh -huh. 
<laughs> Stark. Yeah. <laughs> Riri, go to your room. <laughs> You're not my dad. You don't even have any legal control over me. <laughs> uh, she'd figure out a way out, though. Yeah, she'd rewire the wall that doesn't have any wires. <laughs> I'm going to give it four and a half. Are they burning our effigies? <laughs> I think I'll give it four. You are grounded. I'll give it four. That's really fucked up, Vision. Really fucked up. So I'm taking us way back in history over to the Flintstones number 11 from DC Comics. The Neighborhood Association, written by Mark Russell, pencils and inks by Steve Huh. Pugh, I'm not sure how you say his last name, colors by Chris Chuckery. This is the story of the Great Gazoo is kind of the emissary from this intergalactic confederation that's trying to figure out, are they going to destroy the Earth? Are they going to bring it into the Federation? What are they going to do? And you find out there's this group called the Neighborhood Association that is trying to decide what to do with the Earth. Are they going to be good neighbors or bad neighbors? And it kind of parallels what's actually going on in Bedrock, because Barney has made for Fred for his birthday this giant homoerotic statue basically that he has insisted that he put out in his front lawn which nobody likes but Fred can't take it down because it's a gift from his best friend so it has to stay up there so there's all these hipsters that have moved in that are concerned for their (laughs) property values so they want him to take it down and they've got petitions going on and protests and finally they end up building a wall around his house Fred and Barney start talking about the statue and Barney tells him, well, it's kind of ugly. You can go ahead and take it down. So that's how that kind of gets resolved. And while all that's going on, the Great Gazoo is dealing with the intergalactic space aliens that are part of the Neighborhood Association. And they're kind of going around to different planets and they see tacky parts of other planets. So they end up just Alderaan destroying the entire planet because it's not sightly and they don't make good neighbors. So they're kind of worried. Gazoo is worried anyway that they are going to not like humans. So he convinces them that he's going to be the one who gets to pick which earth creature they get to examine. They do a brain scan on the creature that he picked and they figure out that it's not very smart and very friendly and so they think it'll make a good neighbor. And you find out that it's actually Dino that they scanned, not one of the humans and that that's why the earth is spared because Dino is a lovable goof who likes crashing into things and meat. It's really cute. I think there's a lot of commentary here going on. If you've ever had to deal with a neighborhood association, this will feel very on point with them complaining about how the different houses look and the codes that they're violating and all of that and I liked it I thought it was cute it wasn't my favorite Flintstones issue but I felt it was interesting and funny what'd you guys think of the Flintstones I was so annoyed by those hipster trash (laughs) I'm still trying to figure out if the writer likes hipsters or hates hipsters it sometimes seems like he hates hipsters and that's why he's always making jokes about them but at the same time the Flintstones TV show kind of had that too of what the opinion of just regular people was and how fucked up annoying people are kind of the I guess the writer's view nowadays is that modern people are just fucked up annoying hipsters because like every issue has hipsters in it when i bought my house people have like the top of the list like i want to walk in closet i was like i do not want an hoa i do not want to deal with people inserting their opinions into my life fuck that i'm like oh people you take your petitions and all your other crap and get out of my life if i want to have a giant pink flamingo i'm gonna have a fucking giant pink flamingo i thought we were in america Screw HOAs. There is some commentary, like you were saying, with the hipsters. And I did enjoy that when Pebbles gives Fred his birthday gift, it's an album, which is a Tyrannosaurus Rex rapper that he, she thinks he should listen to. thought that was pretty funny. Every little panel, like if you look in the corners of it, you're going to find a little joke in there. This is definitely worth reading with a eye to attention of detail that you will find lots of little things hidden in the corners of this. And I thought the thing with Dino was, was just cute. I think he's way more cartoony than the other characters 
characters. And I just think that that kind of works for the lovable goof that they are trying to make him into. I think in the end, I will give it three and a half great gazoos. I gave it three. We signed a petition. I'll give it three and a quarter Las Vegas because I live in Vegas. So you want to take us into space? The silence of space? Black Bolt number one, Marvel Comics, written by Saladin Ahmed, or by Christian Ward. This is the solo story. So this is apparently what he went off to do. I'm assuming this has something to do with the little thing that was whispered into his ear by his brother. I'm not exactly sure how he got the muzzle on his face or he got here. They say his brother can, like, control minds and create illusions and all that, and he switched them. He's in his brother's place. So he's pretending to be Black Bolt? Yes, and he thrown in jail looking like, is it Maximus? That makes sense. I missed that somewhere. <laughs> but that makes total sense for Magnets. Very good plot of his. Black Bolt wakes up up in some sort of weird space prison. It's got this Doctor Who-like voice that just yells, name your crimes, repent your crimes. And it's just him kind of wallowing here with this muzzle on his face and these kind of cuff things on his hands with this faceless voice that just yells these things. And then he just gets to a point where his cosmic energy builds up and blows off the handcuffs. He's still got the muzzle on his face. He's walking through this weird kind of Escher prison with the muzzle stuck to his head. You know, I love that MC Escher panel where he's walking through the panel. It feels very like Spider-Woman, kind of that motion in panels that I always will love. I did like that panel a lot. I thought the repeating of the he wakes up in the dark, he's a king or in the filth, that repetition was trying to get that kind of like Tom King repetition, I felt. I agree. The writing seemed very Tom King-like to me. Not as good, but in that style. He's walking through the prison trying to figure out what the fuck is going on and where am I? And he ends up, for some reason, with Crusher Creel, the absorbing man, who isn't quite absorbing here, but he's still an asshole. And he gets up in Black Bolt's face and starts fighting him. And then Black Bolt shows him how bad of an idea it is to actually fucking go after Black Bolt. Because he's not just a guy who whispers and destroys a city. He's also trained his entire life to be a king, warrior king of these people. He's not just his powers. He's also a ridiculously dangerous just person to be. Which I think is a lot of kind of upselling for the show. Especially with some of the feedback that came back when they showed pictures of it. Which I didn't mind. I liked the costumes. But he gets all the way to the end. And the voice that was faceless is still faceless because it's got a hood covering the face. But it's got this like wicked claws and stuff. And he's like, name your crimes, repent. And then Black Bolt tears off his muzzle. And then he's like, I'm going to use my powers. And he whispers and he just says, stop, fucking nothing happens. And he's like, oh. The little monster death demon guy thing goes, penance and death for your crimes and violations. And he electrocutes Black Bolt apparently to death it references dying even shows a skull and then he wakes up back in his cage and then the dude explains uh, there's this uh i guess it's another inmate walks by Blinky. he goes anyway i'm <laughs> here i go by blinky <laughs> He's like, what did you do? What did you put there? And he just speaks. He speaks as if he normally speaks. And he goes, I am called Black Bolt and I put myself here. And from the outside, I almost think he's in Kiln. It does look like that. Kiln is actually a Marvel Comics prison in space. But it's also the prison that the Guardians get put in in the original Guardians movie. Yep. But it's the most maximum security, maximum security prison that there is. I thought I was just thinking that it looked like that just to me. I'm glad someone else thought it looked like that. It's where you put people when you want to fucking forget about them. Makes sense. He put himself here, and I don't know if that's basically a callback to Maximus telling people that he was him put himself here, or he literally checked himself in because he feels guilty for whatever the secret was that Maximus says, or if that secret was when he switched places with Maximus. I don't know, but it kind of ended up here at the end. This, it's a good mystery start book. I'm actually interested to see where this goes, which is surprising because I am the world's least enthusiastic fan of the Inhumans. 
I don't really like them and I don't get their purpose. This book was kind of trippy and weird, but very interesting and compelling at the same time. I think you should retry Doctor Who because it's a Doctor Who episode. Yeah, I agree with you, Matt. It is very Doctor Who-like. This is a Doctor Who episode. <laughs> Perhaps. I really wouldn't know. I don't particularly like Doctor Who. I think the art in this is pretty good. It has almost like a dreamlike quality to it, but it also has panels where it's very detailed as well. I think the writing is compelling and interesting. I want to kind of know what happens here. I also, I, do I don't know if you read the little page at the back where the writer is talking about all the important issues this book is going to tackle, like what makes a criminal? What happens when you lock one in a cage? And he's like, the most important question of all, what happens when super powerful people hit each other with really big objects? So... <laughs> I think there's kind of a blend between the deeper philosophical questions a comic book can address and super punching. I don't like seeing Black Bolt being able to talk. That kind of bugs me. It's like, it feels like kind of like half-ass in it. We don't know how to tell the story without him being able to talk. And then I think some part of him saying I put myself in here was like almost like his guilt where, you know, I trusted my brother and everyone told me not to. And here I am. Did this to myself. I have no one to blame but myself. And then it leads yeah. to the question of, is he actually physically in a prison? Oh, like his brother created like a mind or he created it for himself. Like, this is all going on in his head, and that's why it's this weird kind of labyrinth. I took the, I put myself here, like you were saying, Carissa, kind of as a result of his actions. Not like he checked himself in to face prison rehab or something, but that his actions led him here, and he's feeling regret for that. Again, we're starting off six months into a story. I'm like, when did he get arrested? The war with his brother, and sentencing his brother to this fate that he now has to experience. Didn't before Medusa turn over her reign, she sentenced Maximus away? Oh, that's right and by that time they'd already switched yeah i didn't know where he'd gone though at the end of royals when they leave they're sentencing maximus to this so i'm going to give it three i put myself here i thought it was a good book maybe three and a half it's kind of compelling but it's in humans so it's already got that going against it especially since there's a page at the back explaining what we're trying to go for here i hate being told what i'm supposed to care about and the inhumans seems to be constantly them trying to tell me you should like this because we kind of fucked ourselves with the X-Men thing. I'm going to give it three and a quarter. They call me Blinky. I will give it three and a half. Name your crimes. Repent your crimes. Next, we're covering Jean Grey, number one. Marvel Comics, written by Dennis Hopeless. Pencils and inks by Victor Ibanza. And colors by J. David Ramos. This starts with Jean having udon breakfast in Tokyo or Kyoto in Japan. And just thinking to herself, she's having an inner monologue about, I'm not that Jean, but I'm not this Jean. I'm her Contemplating all her differences and her existence and how she feels about the situation. While there, the wrecking crew decides to do a heist and she's going to stop them. And there's some commentary from them about how they thought, Rob, Japan, you said. No soups would be in Japan. But they happen to run into Jean Grey and they think that, oh, we could take on one teenage girl and find out that they have a very difficult time of taking on said teenage girl. And, you know, they battle and she's making fun of them because they are kind of hokey villains. They've always have been. They're evil construction workers, basically. <laughs> I think there's very classic Jean Grey moments. It is very Jean Grey, the artwork. It's pretty and it's detailed, but it also kind of looks kind of sketchy and young. It feels young to me, like teenagers, like it fit that age that this character is to me in some way. I'm not sure really how to describe that, but I like it. And she looks very kind of tomboy-like in some pictures and like pouty, very kind of Molly Ringwald looking to me. Yes. And then other times she looks very pretty and just that kind of awkward teenage age of pretty and 
awkward, I think. I didn't post the panel that I want to talk about now because I was afraid it might be a spoiler. I'm not really not sure if I should mention it, but I think it's pretty much where the series is going, so I'm just going to say it. Part of the reason when she was talking about all her fears out, like, I'm not that gene. I've never even been near a fucking cosmic dark firebird. During her fight with this, she's constantly hearing a voice talking to her, and she's like, oh, that's no big deal. I hear voices all the time. And then all of a sudden, she sees freaking Phoenix. <laughs> like huge blown and the panel is fantastic i love that artwork it distracts her enough that the evil construction workers get one over on her knock her out because she was kind of biding her time until the jet got there with her teammates they could clean it up and take care of it all and she was doing pretty good until she got distracted and now she's freaking out that the phoenix is coming for her she will be that so what do you guys think i really liked this i think dennis hopeless has for whatever reason can write female characters very very well he did fantastic with spider-woman and now we are seeing him here and i think he's doing a pretty damn good job of this this is like you were saying basically the story of a teenage girl fighting a bunch of construction workers who are hassling her so i did kind of appreciate that little almost like meta commentary on there i also liked that when they had the big bags of money that they had the japanese yen symbol on it like a big yen symbol on it like in old cartoons you'd have like a big dollar bill sign on the side of a sack of money so i liked that they had the Japanese version of that. I thought that was pretty funny. I also caught that. I appreciated it as well. I think the writing in here is clever. It's interesting. The fights are cool. The way that she uses her telepathy and her telekinesis and she talks about how no one can hide from her because she can find your mind and she can move objects around as she wants. I like when she was taunting the guy. She's like, I can find you this way, this way, or I can give you a really bad headache and listen for it. He's like, ah, she's like, there. (laughs) I just thought this book was really, really good. I actually wasn't looking that forward to a Jean Grey book, but I have to say this one was a fantastic surprise. I really liked it. I'm glad that they're going forward and doing some of the classic X-Men stuff like this. While I don't want them to just go through and pull all of the classic Marvel Universe people from the past into the future, I think this was a really good way of getting out of a corner that they wrote themselves into and then built a wall behind themselves with the original class of the X-Men, Cyclops and Jean and all that. There's so much stuff that they kind of built up behind them with the Jean Grey character and I think this is a good way of doing it. They're pushing her into the phoenix but i'm kind of curious as to whether or not that's the phoenix or if it's just another powerful telepath and perhaps it's mastermind and they're kind of retelling kind of a half rebooty retelling of the original phoenix saga it's like not actually phoenix but it's something that's going to push her towards maybe unlocking it i like the end of the book there's the next issue preview thing it's got does hope have psychic powers never understood what hope's powers are i always thought her power was just she looked like jean gray <laughs> you've got hope you've got rachel which is a little funny because mother and daughter standing side by side but not exactly (laughs) and daughters older than mother and then you've got what is his name Quentin Quirrell or Quill the Omega Kid or something like that I think is his code name yeah he's an Omega level mutant Kid Omega who's just the most Grant Morrison let's just say Grant Morrison is standing there (laughs) I'll give you that Grant loves putting himself and sometimes doesn't love putting himself into his stories and I think that's where he came from and I love that he just keeps popping up every once in a while he's an Omega level telepath and then Rachel's uh, high level and Jean someday. I don't know if she's Omega level here. This is why I'm confused by Hope standing back. I was reading about Omega level mutants this week actually on a whole separate kind of thing. They're fucking terrifying. Jean Grey is considered an Omega level mutant. So. No, but is this Jean Grey? Well, it's the same Jean Grey. She's genetically... Right, but Omega level mutants, uh, it's like a potential level? Right, but she's the same person. She's just earlier back, so she has this... I know, but has she unlocked that mutation? She is the potential to be an Omega level mutant, but the whole Omega level thing came in when people were starting to go through second 
secondary and tertiary mutations. Like Beast's whole turning blue as he gets older and turning more into a beast, his mutation is advancing. And Jean, through the Phoenix and everything else, her mutation advanced. Like, originally she was just a telekinetic. Well, originally she was a telepath, and then she became a telekinetic. And then her telepathic powers got unlocked. But then when they got unlocked to a crazy fucking level, she became an Omega-level mutant. Of course, that was also when they introduced the term Omega-level mutant, so it might be retcon planning. My thing is, I don't understand if she right now has the unlocked Omega-level powers, or if she just has the potential to unlock it, and some fucked up's gonna have to happen. I think she has the potential, but hasn't unlocked them yet. I think I'm ready to read it. Alrighty. I'm gonna give it four and a half. Confidence looks good on you. I will give it four and a half. The Phoenix is coming. Damn it, Ryan! <laughs> Stop it! Uh, it's like I could read your mind and see what you were gonna do. Ha ha ha. I'll give it four and a half. Jean Grey is Jean Grey is Jean Grey. So those were the books we read this week. To check out our other podcast, Cut the Cord, as well as other nerd shenanigans, go check out fourcolornerds.com or our Facebook page. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram, and feel free to give us feedback or shoot us comments on any of our social media spots. You can find the podcast on iTunes and Google Play Podcasts in the music app, or you can feel free to give us a five-star review. Hint, hint, they really help us out. On Stitcher on SoundCloud and on Podcast Addict. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Come back next week for another episode. And until then, keep reading, nerds.